Chapter Three of the Vikings by Ellen Mauer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kevin Johnson. Chapter Three: The Vikings in England to the Death of Harthacnut. The great development of Viking activity, which took place after 855, was certainly not unconnected with the course of events in Denmark itself. Herakur was attacked by his two nephews in 850 and compelled to share the kingdom with them. In 854, large bands of Vikings returned to their fatherland after twenty years ravaging in Frankish territory. Trouble now arose between Herakur and his nephew Godurm, bracket Old Norse Gudormr, bracket, one of the returned leaders. Civil war broke out and ultimately after a great fight, the kingship fell on a younger Herakur, a relative of the late king. A severe dynastic struggle of this kind must have been accompanied by much unsettlement and perhaps by an actual proscription. It would certainly seem that there was some definite connection between these events and the coincident appearance of the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok as leaders of a more extended Viking movement both in England and in France. Three of his sons, Halfdaner, Ubi, and Ivar, took part in the first wintering in Sheppey in 855, while in the same year another son, Björn Ironside, appeared on the Seine. The figure of Ragnar Lothbrok himself belongs to an earlier generation, and great as was his after-fame, we unfortunately know very little of his actual career. He would seem to have been of Norwegian birth, closely connected with the south of Norway and the house of Gudrother, and like that prince having extensive interests in Denmark. He probably visited Ireland in 831, for we read in Saxo of an expedition made by Ragnar to Ireland when he slew King Melbricus and ravaged Dublin, an event which is pretty certainly to be identified with an attack made on the Conile district, bracket C.O. Louth, end of bracket, by foreigners in 831, when the king Malbrigde was taken prisoner. He led the disastrous Seine expedition in 845. The next glimpse of him, which we have, is probably that found in certain Irish annals, where he is represented as exiled from his Norwegian patrimony and living with some of his sons in the Orkneys, while others were absent on expeditions to the British Isles, Spain, and Africa. And a runic inscription has been found at Maishau in the Orkneys, confirming the connection of the sons of Lothbrok and possibly of Lothbrok himself with those islands. The expeditions would be those mentioned above, and yet more famous one made to Spain, Africa and Italy by Björn Ironside in the years 859 to 62. Ragnar Lothbrok's later history is uncertain. According to the Irish annals quoted above, his sons while on their expedition dreamed that their father had died in a land not his own, and on their return found it to be true. This agrees with Scandinavian tradition, according to which Ragnar met his death at the hands of Aile, king of Northumbria by whom he was thrown into a snake-pit, while the capture of York by Ivar the Boneless in 866-7 to 7 
is represented as part of a great expedition of vengeance undertaken by the sons of Ragnar. This tradition, bracket, apart from certain details, end of bracket, is probably historical, but we have no definite confirmatory evidence. With this note on the history of Denmark at this time, and on the career of the most shadowy, if at the same time the most famous of the Viking leaders, we may turn once more to the history of events in England. For ten years after the wintering in Sheppey, England, was left in a state of comparative peace, the change came in 866 when a large Danish force, which had been bribed to leave the Seine by Charles the Bald, sailed to England and took up its quarters in East Anglia. In 867 they crossed the Humber and captured York, the task being made easier by the quarrels of Eile and Osbert as to the kingship of Northumbria. Next year the rivals patched up their differences, but failed to recapture York from the Danes under Ivar and Ubi. Setting up a puppet king, Ekbert, in Northumbria north of the Tyne, the Danes next received the submission of Mercia and returned to York in 869. In 870, they marched through Mercia into East Anglia, as far as Thetford, engaged the forces of Edmund, king of East Anglia, defeated and slew him, whether in actual battle or in later martyrdom, as popular tradition would have it, is uncertain. The death of St. Edmund, king and martyr, soon became an event of European fame, and no Viking leader was more widely execrated than the cruel Ivar, who was deemed responsible. The turn of Wessex came next. The fortunes of battle fluctuated, but the accounts usually terminate with the ominous words, the Danes held possession of the battlefield. In 871, Alfred commenced his heroic struggle with the Danes, and in the first year of his reign, some nine pitched battles were fought besides numerous small engagements. So keen was the West Saxon resistance that a truce was made in 871, and the Danes turned their attention to Mercia once more. London was forced to ransom itself at a heavy price, and a coin of half-danner, probably minted in London at the time, has been found. After a hurried visit to Northumbria, the Here settled down for the winter of 872-3, at Torxey, in the Lindsay district, whence they moved in 873 to Repton in Derbyshire. They overthrew Burred of Mercia and set up a foolish thane of his as puppet ruler of that realm. In the winter of 874-5, the Here divided forces. One part went under Half-Danner to the Tyne Valley, the other under Guthorm, bracket, Old Norse Guthormer, end of bracket, to Cambridge. In 876, Halfdanner divided up the lands of Northumbria among his followers, who soon ploughed and cultivated them. At the same time, they did not forget their old occupations. Raids were made against the Picts and the Strathclyde Welsh, while Halfdanner soon became involved in the great struggle going on in Ireland at that time between Norsemen and Danes. This ultimately led to his death in 877. In the meantime, the struggle continued in Wessex. In 875, Alfred captured seven Danish ships. In 876, the southern division of the Here slipped past the West Saxon Fjord and reached Wareham in Dorsetshire, but came to terms with Alfred. 
Though the peace was sworn with all solemnity on their sacred altar ring, the mounted portion of the Here slipped off once more and established themselves in Exeter. Their land forces were supported by a parallel movement of the fleet. At Exeter, Alfred made peace with them and the Here returned to Mercia. There, half the land was divided up among the Danes, while the southern half was left in the hands of Caelwulf. Alfred reached the nadir of his fortunes when the Here returned to Wessex in the winter of 877-8, drove many of the inhabitants into exile across the sea, and received the submission of the rest with the exception of King Alfred and a few followers who took refuge on the island of Athelney, amid the Somersetshire marshes. Alfred soon gathered round him a force with which he was able to issue from his stronghold and ultimately to inflict a great defeat on the Danes at Eddington, near Westbury. They now made terms with Alfred by the Peace of Wedmore, and agreed to leave Alfred's kingdom, while their king, Guthrum, received Christian baptism. They withdrew first to Surencester, and then to East Anglia. Here they settled, portioning out the lands, as they had done in Northumbria and northern Mercia. A peace was drawn up between Alfred and Guthrum of East Anglia, defining the boundary between their realms. It was to run along the Thames estuary to the mouth of the Lee, bracket a few miles east of London, end of bracket, then up the Lee to its source near Leighton Buzzard, and due north to Bedford, then eastwards up to the Ouse to Watling Street, somewhere near Fenny or Stony Stratford. From this point the boundary is left undefined, probably because the kingdoms of Alfred and Guthrum ceased to be conterminous here. England now had peace for some twelve years. Alfred made good use of the interval in reorganizing his army and strengthening the kingdom generally, so that when attacks were renewed in 892, he was much better prepared to meet them. In the autumn of that year, two fleets coming from France arrived in England. One landed on the Limen, bracket between Hythe and Romney Marsh, end of bracket. The other under the leadership of Hysten, bracket Old Nurse Haystein, end of bracket, at Milton in North Kent. Alfred's difficulties were increased by the fact that during the next four years, the Danish settlers in Northumbria and East Anglia played a more or less actively hostile part, both by land and sea. The Danes showed all their old mobility, and in a series of raids crossed England more than once. First to Buddington on the Severn, bracket C.O. Montgomery, end of bracket, then to Chester, and on a third occasion to Bridgenorth in Shropshire. They met with a uniformly stout and well-organized resistance under the leadership of Alfred, his son Edward the Elder, and his brother-in-law Ethelred of Mercia. And in the end, they had to retire with no fresh acquisition of territory. For the most part, they distributed themselves among the East Anglian and Northumbrian Danes, but those who had no cattle wherewith to stock their land took ship and sailed back to the Seine. There were no further attacks from abroad during Alfred's reign, but piratical raids made by the East Anglian and Northumbrian Danes caused him a good deal of trouble, and in order to meet them he definitely addressed himself to the long-delayed task of equipping a fleet. 
The vessels were carefully designed according to Alfred's own ideas. They were larger, swifter, and steadier than the Danish vessels, and they soon showed their worth when more than twenty vessels with their crews were lost by the Danes in one year. It is interesting to note that these vessels were manned in part by Frisian sailors, probably because of the low ebb to which England seamanship had sunk. When once Edward the Elder's claim to the throne was firmly established in the battle fought at the Holm, somewhere in South Cambridgeshire, he commenced, with the active cooperation of his brother-in-law, Ethelred, Ealdorman of Mercia, the great work of strengthening the hold of the English on southern Mercia preparatory to an attempt to reconquer the Danelog. Chester was rebuilt in 907. In 910, a fort was built at Bremsbrig, possibly Bromesbero, in Gloucestershire. Ethelred died in the next year, but his wife, Ethelflaed, the lady of the Mercians, continued his work, and forts were built at Skergiat, perhaps Shrewsbury, at Bridgenorth, on the Severn, at Tamworth, and at Stafford, in 912. In 914, Warwick was fortified, while in 915, forts were built at Chirbury in Shropshire and Runcorn in Cheshire. On the death of Athelred, Edward took London and Oxford, and the parts of Mercia adhering to them into his own hands. Two forts were built on the north and south sides of the Lee at Hertford in 911-12, and another at Whitham on the Blackwater in Essex. Edward's work soon bore fruit, for we read that in the same year a large number of those who had been under Danish rule now made submission to the king. The Danes in the five boroughs became restless under the continued advance of the English, and twice in the year 913 they made raids from Leicester and Northampton as far as Hook Norton in Oxfordshire and Leighton Buzzard. Well, in the next year, Edward, for the first time in his reign, was troubled by raiders from abroad. Coming from Brittany, they sailed up the Severn, ravaged South Wales and the Archenfield district of Herefordshire, but could do nothing against the garrison of Gloucester. Hereford and other neighbouring towns, which seem already to have been fortified, they were forced to leave the district, and so careful a watch did Edward keep over the coast of Somerset, Devon and Cornwall, that they could make no effective landing, though they tried twice, at Porlock and at Watchet. Ultimately, they took up their quarters in the islands of Flatholm and Steepholm in the Bristol Channel, but lack of food soon drove them away to Ireland in a starving condition. In the same year, Edward built two forts at Buckingham, one on each side of the Ouse, and his policy again found speedy justification when Earl Thurkeitel, bracket Old Norse Thorkeld, end bracket, and all the chief men who obeyed Bedford, together with many of those who obeyed Northampton, submitted to him. Everything was now ready for the great advance against the Danes. Derby fell in 917, while in the next year Leicester yielded without a struggle. Their fall was accompanied by the submission of the men of Derbyshire and Leicestershire. At the same time, the inhabitants of York declared themselves ready to enter the service of Mercia. Edward fortified Bedford in 915, Malden and Towchester in South Northampshire in 916, 
Again, the Danes from Northampton and Leicester tried to break through the steadily narrowing ring of forts, and they managed to get as far south as Aylesbury, while others from Huntingdon and East Anglia built a fort at Tempsford in Bedfordshire, near the junction of the Ivel and the Ouse. They besieged a fort at Wigingamere, bracket, unidentified, end of bracket, but were forced to withdraw. Edward gathered an army from the nearest garrison towns, besieged, captured, and destroyed Tempsford, bracket 915, end of bracket. In the autumn, he captured Colchester and a Danish attempt on Malden failed. Edward now strengthened Towchester and received the submission of Earl Thurfrith, bracket Old Norse Thorother, end of bracket, and all the Danes in Northamptonshire, as far north as the Welland. Huntington was occupied about the same time, and the ring of forts around East Anglia brought about the submission of the whole of that district, Cambridgeshire making a separate compact on its own account. In 918, Edward built a fort just south of Stamford, and soon received the submission of the Danes of South Lincolnshire, and in the same year occupied Nottingham, building a fort and garrisoning it with a mixed English and Danish force. He was now ruler of the whole of Mercia, owing to the death of his sister, Ethelflaed, and in 919 he fortified Thelwall in Cheshire, on the Mercy, and rebuilt the old Roman fort at Manchester. In 920 he built a second fort at Nottingham, and one at Bakewell in Derbyshire. The reconquest of the Danelog was complete and Edward now received the submission of the Scots, the Strathclyde Welsh, of Regnold, bracket Old Norse Roggenwalder, end of bracket, of Northumbria, and of English, Danes, and Norsemen alike. The Danish settlers accepted the sovereignty of the West Saxon king and henceforward formed part of an expanded Wessex which had consolidated its power over all England south of a line drawn roughly from the Humber to the Dee. The submission of Roggenwalder, king of Northumbria, and the mention of Norsemen need some comment. On the death of Halfdanner in 877, an interregnum of seven years ensued, and then, in accordance with instructions given by St. Cuthbert, in a vision to Abbot Aedred of Carlisle, the Northumbrians chose a certain Guthred, bracket Old Norse Guthrother, end of bracket, as their king. He was possibly a nephew of the late king, ruled till 894, and was also known as Knut, bracket Old North Knuter, end of bracket. We have coins bearing the inscription Alfred Rex on the obverse and Knut Rex on the reverse, indicating apparently some overlordship of King Alfred. Together with these we have some coins with Knut Rex on the obverse and Sifredes, or bracket Sievert, end of bracket, on the reverse, and others minted at Ibroke Kibitas, bracket, i.e. York, end of bracket, with the sole inscription Sifredes Rex. This latter king would seem to have been first a subordinate partner and then, on Gudrother's death, sole ruler of Northumbria. Other coins belonging to about the same period and found in the great Curdale Horde, near Preston, bear the inscription Citric Comus, and there is good reason to believe that Sifredas, bracket Old Norse Sigrother, end of bracket, 
and Sithric, bracket Old Norse Sigtrigr, end of bracket, are to be identified with Sigfrith and Sithriuk, who just at this time are mentioned in the Irish annals as rival leaders of the Norsemen in Dublin. The identification is important as it shows us that Northumbria was now being brought into definite connection with the Norse kingdom of Dublin, and that the Norse element was asserting itself at the expense of the Danish in northern England. The rule of Sigrother and Sigtrigger alike had come to an end by 911, and we know nothing more until the year 918 when a fresh invasion from Ireland took place under a certain Roggenwalder. He gained a victory at Corbridge on Tyne and captured York in 919 or 920. He divided the lands of St. Cuthbert among his followers but died in 921, the year of his submission to the overlordship of Edward. The Irish annals speak of him as king of white and black foreigners alike, thus emphasizing the composite settlement of Northumbria. Another leader from Ireland, one Sigtrigger, succeeded Roggenwalder as king of Northumbria. He was on friendly terms with Athelstan and married his sister in 925. He died in 926 or 927, and then Athelstan took Northumbria under his own control. Sigtrigger's brother, Gudrother, submitted to Athelstan, but after four days at the court of King Athelstan, he returned to piracy as a fish to the sea. Both Sigtrigger and Gudrother left sons bearing the name Anlaf, bracket Old Norse Olafur, end of bracket. And with them Athelstan and his successors had much trouble. Anlaf Sithrixen lived in exile in Scotland and gradually organized against Athelstan a great confederacy of Scots, Strathclyde Welsh, and Vikings, both Danish and Norwegian. Anlaf Godfreyson brought help from Ireland, and the great struggle began. The course of the campaign is uncertain, but if the site of its main battle, Brunanburh, is to be identified with Birenswark Hill in southeast Dumfrieshire, it would seem that Athelstan carried the war into the enemy's country. The result of the battle was a complete victory for the forces of Athelstan and his brother Edmund. Constantine's son, five kings, and seven jarls were among the slain. We have in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle a poem celebrating the victory, and it describes in vivid language the hurried return home of Constantine, lamenting the death of his son, and the headlong flight of Anlaf Godfreyson to Dublin. England had been freed from its greatest danger since the days of King Alfred and his struggle with Guthrum. Athelstan had no more trouble with the Norsemen, and we have evidence from other sources that at some time during his reign, probably at an earlier date, he exchanged embassies with Harold Fairhair, king of Norway. The latter sent him a present of a ship with a golden prow and purple sails and the usual bulwark of shields along the gunwale, while Harold's favourite son, Hakon, was brought up at Athelstan's court. There he was baptised and educated and is known in Norse history as Hakon Athelstane's Fostri. After the death of Athelstan, Anlaf Sithrixen, nicknamed Kuran, bracket i.e. with the sock or brogue of leather, so called from his Irish dress, end of bracket, 
came to England and captured York. From there he made an attempt to conquer the Danish district of the Five Boroughs. He seems to have got a good part of Mercia into his hands, but in the end Edmund freed the Danes from Norse oppression and took once more into his hands all Mercia, south of a line from Dore, bracket near Sheffield, end of bracket, to Whitwell, bracket Derbyshire, end of bracket, and thence to the Humber. Edmund and Anlaf came to terms, but Anlaf was driven out by the Northumbrians in 943, and in the next year that province fell into the hands of Edmund. In 947, Eric Bloodaxe, son of Harold Fairhair, was accepted as king by the Northumbrians. In Scandinavian tradition, we learn how he was expelled from Norway in 934 by the supporters of Hakon, went on Viking raids in the west, was appointed ruler of Northumbria by Athelstan on condition of his defending it against attack, but was not on good terms with Edmund, who favoured one Olaf. Probably Eric retired after Athelstan's death and only returned to England in 947. In 948, Edmund forced the Northumbrians to abandon his cause, and about the same time Anlaf returned from Ireland and ruled till about 950, when he was replaced by Eric, whose short rule came to an end in 954. In that year, he was expelled by the Northumbrians and killed at Stainmoor in Westmoreland. The attempt to establish a Norse kingdom of Northumbria had failed and henceforward that district was directly under the rule of the English king. English authority was supreme once more, even in those districts which were largely peopled with Scandinavian settlers. England had no further trouble with Norse or Danish invaders until the days of Ethelred the Unready, but no sooner did that weak and ill-advised king come to the throne than, with that ready and intimate knowledge of local conditions which they always displayed, we find Danes making an attack on Southampton and Norsemen one on Chester. The renewed attacks were not, however, due solely to the weakness of England. They were also the result of changed conditions in Scandinavia itself. In Denmark, the reign of Harold Bluetooth was drawing to a close, and the younger generation, conscious of a strong and well-organized nation behind them, were ambitious of new and larger conquests while at the same time many of them were in revolt against the definitely Christian policy of Harold in his old age. They turned with hope towards his young son Svein, and found in him a ready and willing leader. In Norway, Earl Hakon had broken away from the suzerainty of Harold Bluetooth, but the Norwegians could not forget that he owed his throne to a foreign power, and his personal harshness and licentiousness as well as his zealous cult of the old heathen rites, were a cause of much discontent. The hopes of the younger generation were fixed on Olaf Tryggvason, a man filled with the spirit of the old Vikings. Captured by pirates from Estonia when still a child, he was discovered, ransomed and taken to Novgorod, where he entered the service of the Grand Duke Vladimir. Furnished by him with a ship, he went Viking in the Baltic, and then ten years later we find him prominent among the Norsemen who attacked England in the days of King Ethelred. In 991 a Norse fleet under Olaf visited Ipswich and Malden. Here they met with a stout resistance headed by the brave 
Beersnoth, Earl of Essex, and in the fragmentary lay of the fight at Malden, which has been preserved to us, we see that there was still much of the spirit of the heroic age left in the English nation, even in the days of Ethelred II. It was to buy off this attack that a payment of Danegeld, to the extent of some ten thousand pounds, was made. From Malden, Olaf went to Wales and Anglesey, and it was somewhere in the west that he received knowledge of the Christian faith from an anchorite and was baptized. He did not, however, renounce his Viking life, but joined forces with his great Danish contemporary Svein Forkbeard. Bamborough was sacked in 993, and both were present at the siege of London in 994, when they sailed up the Thames with 490 ships. The attack was a failure, and Olaf came to terms with Ethelred, agreeing to desist from further attack in return for a payment of £16,000 of Danegeld. Olaf was the more ready to make this promise, as he was now addressing himself to the task of gaining the sovereignty of Norway itself. Many of the Norsemen returned with Olaf, but the attacks on the coast continued, and the invaders, chiefly Danes now, ravaged the country in all directions. Treachery was rife in the English forces, and again and again the Eldermen failed in the hour of need. Danegeld after Danegeld was paid in the vain hope of buying off further attacks, and the almost incredible sum of a hundred and fifty-eight thousand pounds of silver, bracket, i.e. some half million sterling, end of bracket, was paid as Danegeld during a period of little more than twenty years. Once or twice Ethelred showed signs of energy, once in one thousand, when a fleet was sent to Chester, which ravaged the Isle of Man, while an army devastated Cumberland, and again in a thousand and four, when a great fleet was made ready but ultimately proved of no use. Ethelred's worst stroke of policy was the order given in thousand and two for the massacre on St. Bryce's Day of all Danes settled in England. His orders were carried out only too faithfully, and among the slain was Svein's sister, Gunnhild, the wife of a Danish jarl in the king's service. Svein's vengeance was relentless, and during the next ten years the land had no peace, until in 1013 Ethelred was driven from the throne, and Svein himself became king of England. Svein died in 1014, and his son Canute succeeded to his claim. Ethelred was invited by the Witan to return, and ultimately Wessex fell to Canute. While the district of the seven boroughs, bracket, the old five together with York and Chester, end of bracket, and Northumbria, passed into the hands of Ethelred, or rather of his energetic son, Edmund. This division of the country, placing the district once settled by Danes and Norsemen under an English king, while the heart of England itself was in the possession of a Scandinavian king, shows how completely the settlers in those districts had come to identify themselves with English interests as a whole. Mercia was nominally in Ethelred's power, but its earldreman, Eadric Streona, was the most treacherous of all the English earls. On Ethelred's death in 1016, the Witan chose Edmund Ironside as king, and a series of battles took place culminating in that at Ashington in Essex, where the English were completely defeated through the treachery of Eadric. 
division of the kingdom was now made whereby Wessex fell to Edmund, Mercia and Northumbria to Canute. Thus easily was the allegiance of the various districts transferred from one sovereign to another. Edmund only lived a few months and Canute then became king of all England. For twenty years the land enjoyed peace and prosperity. In 1018, the greater part of the Danish army and fleet returned to Denmark, some forty ships and their crews sufficing Canute for the defence of his kingdom. During the next four years he received the submission of the King of Scotland and made a memorable pilgrimage to Rome. The most important event of his latter years was, however, his struggle with Olaf the Stout, the great St. Olaf of Norway. Norway was now entirely independent of Danish sovereignty, and when Knut sent an embassy voicing the old claims of the Danish kings, he received a proudly independent answer from St. Olaf. For the time being, Knut had to be satisfied, but in 1025 he sailed with a fleet to Norway, only to suffer defeat at the Battle of the Helge Au, bracket, i.e. Holy River, end of bracket, in Skane at the hands of the united forces of Norway and Sweden. Three years later, the attack was renewed. Olaf's strenuous and often cruel advocacy of the cause of Christianity had alienated many of his subjects, and the Swedes had deserted their ally. The result was that Olaf fled to Russia, and Knut was declared king of Norway. Two years later, the exile returned and fell fighting against his own countrymen, Knut was now the mightiest of all Scandinavian kings, but on his death in 1035 his empire fell apart. Norway went to his son Svein, Denmark to Hartha Knut, and England to Harald Harefoot. Harald was succeeded by Hartha Knut in 1040, but neither king was of the same stamp as Knut, and they were both overshadowed by the great Godwine, Earl of Wessex. When Hartha Knut died in 1042, the male line in descent from Knut was extinct. And though some of the Danes were in favour of choosing Knut's sister's son, Svein, Godwine secured the election of Edward the Confessor. With the accession of Edward, Danish rule in England was at an end. And, except for the ambitious expedition of Harold Hardrata, foiled at Stamford Bridge in 1066, there was no further serious question of a Scandinavian kingship either in or over England. The sufferings of England during the second period of invasion, bracket 980 to 1016, were probably quite as severe as in the worst days of Alfred, the well-known Sermo Lupi ad Anglos, written by Archbishop Wolfstan of York in 1014, draws a terrible picture of the chaos and anarchy then prevailing. But we must remember that neither these years nor the ensuing five and thirty years of Danish kingship left as deep a mark on England as the earlier wars and the settlements resulting from them. There was no further permanent occupation or division of territory, and though some of the earldoms and the great estates passed into the hands of the king's Danish followers, there was no transformation of the whole social life of the people such as had taken place in the old Danelag districts. End of chapter 3